given the, uh, the heads up a few weeks ago that I was going to get the opportunity to preach today, I immediately began thinking and praying about what I would preach on, and, and the phrase came up over and over in my head again and again was all in. All in. If you asked, or if you ask any member of uh, the Seattle Seahawks, or the uh, New England Patriots, and if you're not a football fan, those are the two teams playing tonight. Or for you, Rick, when you listen on the internet or CD, uh, if you ask any member of those teams that are playing for a championship time what all in means, they would tell you that it means buying into the idea that the team is more important than individual accomplishments. They would tell you that it means that everyone has to sacrifice their own desire for individual accomplishments for accomplishing something greater as a team. They would tell you that the team goal is better than any individual awards. And that all 11 players on the field must work together in order to accomplish the goal of winning. They would tell you that they're in the Super Bowl because their team and everyone on their team is all in. You know, in the church setting, it fits nicely with the body imagery that Paul is so fond of using that we studied not that long ago. We are a body made of many parts, but with one head. And each function individually, but unless we function in a way that is giving and, and focused on what the head wants, we can't accomplish anything unless we're all in together. The hand cannot function well unless the arm is all in. And the arm cannot function well unless the torso is all in. And so on. All in. So when we talk about this phrase this morning and apply it to our walk with Christ, it's the idea that we want to have a selfless commitment to the common cause of following Christ. I want us to really think about what it means to be all in. And why wouldn't we be all in? You know, recently in our study of 1 Corinthians, Rick has been teaching us about the resurrection and the truth of that and the, the evidence of that and how convincing the, the fact that that is. And if we're convinced of the truth of the resurrection, it will transform us. Just as it did the apostles. In light of Jesus' death and his resurrection, there seems to be no other choice but to be all in with and for Jesus when we're faced with the truth of that. As a matter of fact, Jesus used some phrasing very similar to all in in, uh, in Matthew's witness account of the Gospels. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look at some of Matthew's discipleship. And those two phrases, Matthew 10.39 and Matthew 16.25, you're going to see are, are very similar. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then in chapter 16, for whoever would, have his, would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Almost identical wording. Hold on to your life and you will lose it. Lose your life and you will find it. That sounds pretty all in to me. All in. There's no middle ground. I believe that following Jesus requires an all-in approach due to the nature of who He is and what He's done. That the greatest blessing of knowing Him is found in losing 
ourselves in an all-or-nothing attitude where we hold nothing back from Him. But that's a challenge, obviously. And this morning I ask you to, to consider this as we talk about this together, as we look at some verses from Matthew through the lens of being one of those disciples. Maybe even Matthew at times, because they literally walked with Jesus and observed firsthand what it meant to be all in. Though they didn't actually figure it all out until after the resurrection. They still were taught, they were stretched, and they were the vehicle through which the gospel came to the world. And so Jesus would teach them, he would put them in in challenging situations, even when they weren't quite all there. And so I want to look at some of Jesus' words regarding following him and what it means to be a disciple. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bible or your app, you want to get to Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, we're going to move through some verses and just look at this all-in idea as we kind of survey the book of Matthew. It's not a complete survey by any means, but we'll move fairly quickly. So get your fingers ready for your old-timers. We'll let our fingers do the walking. Um, But I want to encourage you. Over the next few days, if you have a chance, sit down with the book of Matthew and and read it. And read it uh, in continuity. Uh, I tell you, as I was looking through this, I was really blessed to ignore the chapter divisions. Because a lot of times in my mind, I compartmentalize. Chapter 9 is separate than chapter 10. But in the original, those chapter divisions weren't there. And it was just all one big, long writing, flowing one to the other. And I saw some things that I hadn't seen before, and that it excited me and challenged me all in one. So, since Matthew is our, first, our first-hand witness to Jesus, we'll start looking at when Matthew was called to be a disciple. Now, the, the setting here is Matthew is sitting at his tax booth, because Matthew was a tax collector. And if you're sitting at your tax booth, you're automatically... Uh, hated and suspect by all other Jews. So Matthew is essentially a traitor. And he responds to Jesus' call, and he leaves his tax booth to follow him. And immediately, what we see next is a banquet. A banquet at Matthew's house, and the house is full of tax collectors and sinners. Now something interesting happens here, and I can only imagine what the disciples were thinking at this point. I don't know if they had all 12. It's not, we're not really told. At this point in the book of Matthew, we're only told that Simon and Andrew, uh, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew, those are the only five that are named at, up to this point in, in the, the gospel as being apostles, as being ones that are following. So it could have been those five. It could have been all 12. We, we don't know. But I can only imagine that their commitment to following Jesus is all that kept them there. Think about this. They're, they're Jewish men. They've been brought up to avoid uh, the unclean person, to avoid the tax collector and the sinner, to scoff at them, to uh, ostracize them. And yet, Jesus has brought them into a banquet with the tax collector and sinner, and they were even called on it by the Pharisees. We're told that, that he asks, the Pharisees asked the disciples why Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners. Well, no response is given for the disciples. I don't know if they didn't say anything or if there's just no Greek word for, uh, but Jesus jumps in. And, and let's, let's read Jesus' words in verse 12. But when he heard it, when Jesus heard the question, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy 
and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus jumps right in with his disciples and with the Jewish religious culture and rips it apart in a very intentional two-part reply. The first is an analogy that appears to confirm the questioning. Why are you eating with lowly people? Well, because the well don't need a doctor, and I'm a doctor, so I'm going to be with the sick. But then it appears to sink deeper, and is added to by the truth of the second part. And then, as it sinks in, it condemns. Condemns that religious culture that were better than them. The second sentence reveals the, the misplaced priorities. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It, it, it reveals the, the problem of acting holy at the cost of having a holy heart. An outward Appearance, rather than an inward change. It also reveals Jesus' love for the nobody. Jesus' love for the downtrodden. Already Jesus is flipping the script. He's stretching and pulling his disciples. And the disciples witness Jesus' love for people continually. In, in chapter 9, if you read along to verse 36, we see he longed to lead them. He wanted them to follow him. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus challenges his disciples that are walking with him to pray for workers because the harvest is plentiful. He challenged them to see the world with new eyes. To not see a, a caste system or a social system, but to see everyone in their need. Sheep in need of a shepherd. A crowd of people on the cusp of the kingdom, ripe for the harvest, but people needed to go and share with them. And as a disciple, Matthew probably prayed that prayer. Because at Jesus' urging, he's going to do whatever Jesus says. That's what a disciple does. They follow. They obey. And perhaps you have prayed that prayer too, whenever you've read through the book of Matthew or been, been, or come across it. But beware, are you all in? Because I want you to see something. I want you to see what happens with the disciples. This occurs at the very end of chapter 9. Remember the chapter visions aren't there. The very end of chapter 9, they pray this prayer, send out workers. Send out workers. And you know what happens in chapter 10? Jesus sends out the disciples. Sends them out to, to preach to the lost sheep of Israel. To tell them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were part of the answer to their own prayer. I don't know if Jesus is setting them up or what. But he says, pray for workers. And they say, ah, you're a worker. Get out there. Get out there. And he, and he sends them out and he... he and he even prepares the disciples for hardship. He sent them with nothing. When he sends them out, he says, don't take anything but the message. That must have been unsettling. That must have been a little scary. You know, especially for someone like Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew would have had plenty of money. The fact that he threw a banquet in his house. He was a rich guy. But Jesus says, go. Don't take an extra change of clothes. Don't take a staff. Don't take a bag. Just go. Go. 
All right, you're, you're, you're going to travel. You know, and, and, and we tend to hear this passage and think, well, 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 the disciples of Jesus, he would provide for them. That's not necessarily true either. As he's preparing them, he, he prepares them for the situation when they're not welcome. When they find a, a town where they're not welcome and what they should do. So he's basically saying, you're going with nothing. You're going to face uh, some hard times, some hardships. As a matter of fact, the, the little uh, heading on that, that section in, in the scripture says persecution will come. And he says, you're, you're going to go with nothing. You're going to face rejection. But go take the message. Go take the message. He is having his disciples stretched. He's intentionally putting them into situations where they're going to face some sort of discomfort, whether it's mental or social or physical. And he's having them take out the message. You know, Jesus had told them to pray, knowing that they were part of the solution to the kingdom effort. You know, maybe that's you. (laughs) Found yourself praying for your office mates who don't know Jesus. Are you not the very answer to that prayer? Have you been before the Lord just crying and weeping over lost family members? Are you not in position to be the one to bring them the, the good news that can save them? Do you have a neighbor that's lost? Who better qualified to help them find Jesus than one who's been found by Jesus? Perhaps your eyes are drawn to the lonely or the left out. Who answers that prayer better than for you to go be their friend and to go love them? When I saw that Jesus did this to his disciples, I'm sorry, I kind of said that in a negative way. When I saw that Jesus told his disciples to pray and then he sent them out, I was just kind of blown away. So often we just, we pray. And we just assume it's someone else. You know, there's a popular Christian song right now that I don't particularly like. It's more to do with the music than the message, but it has a good message. In the, in the, the, the lyrics, it asks the question, uh, basically it questions God, you know, there's so much wrong in this world. God, why don't you do something? And God's reply is, I did. I created you. I think that's a, a great message for us when we're thinking about, are we all in? Are we in for us? You know, but it, as we talk about this, as if, as if this was not uncomfortable and stretching enough, Jesus ups the ante even more. In chapter 10, verse 37, look what he tells them. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Are you all in? Boy, that's a much more uncomfortable question now. It kind of hits home. It does hit home, literally. Where does your family rank in your priorities? You know, sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's so easy to let what's called the tyranny of the urgent 
guide us. You know, we have we have so many family obligations, especially those of you who, who are parents of young kids and you gotta taxi them around. We are called to have our very top priority be Christ. Our very top priority, maybe even our top five, top ten priorities, be Christ. Then our family needs to fall behind that. We can't let our families become our, our idol. And you may have noticed if you're looking at that verse, just two verses later is one of our all-in verses, verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Complete surrender. Recognition that your life is not your own. And once again, the placement of this verse is no coincidence. It's at the end of chapter 10. And if we remove the chapter divisions, chapter 11, we find John the Baptist, who in verse 11, Jesus calls the greatest in the kingdom. Where is John the Baptist? He's in prison. He's in prison, the greatest follower of Jesus, the greatest in the kingdom. He's in prison. And Jesus' words echo, whoever loses his life will find it. For the next several chapters, we see examples of being all in. We see parables that he tells that are primarily teach about the Father, but they scream of being all in. Perhaps you remember the parable of the sower, where God is the sower and he goes and he sows seed on the, uh, all over the place. He sows it on the path, he sows it on the rocks, he sows it in the soil, he sows it in the weeds. He's a terrible farmer, but he's all in for finding the good soil. He's all in, he doesn't care if he looks like a foolish farmer. He's all in, even at the cost of wasted seed. He's all in. That's followed up by the parable of the weeds where, where a landowner, which is the picture of God, owns a field. And it's a field of wheat. And an enemy comes and he sows weeds into the field. And the workers come and say, should we pull up the weeds? And, God, and, and the, the farmer says, no, we'll, we'll let them grow. And at harvest, will separate the two. Willing to put up with weeds because he wants to harvest as much wheat as possible. Perhaps he even sees and knows that some of the weeds will become wheat as well. But then there's a couple parables, a couple small parables that scream all in. One is the parable of the hidden treasure where a man finds a hidden treasure in a field. And he goes and he sells all that he has in order, and buys the whole field in order to have that treasure. For God so loved the whole world that He gave His Son Jesus for the whole world that whosoever would believe in Him paid for all so he could have some. He was all in. Follow that parable with the parable of the, the pearl of great price. Same deal. Finds this pearl. Sells all that he has so that he can purchase the pearl. He's all in for us. And then we come back to John the Baptist. 
in chapter 14. And we see John the Baptist is all in. John the Baptist in chapter 14 is beheaded. He doesn't get out to a happy homecoming. He's sent home to a glorious eternity. Whoever loses his life. All in. As we go on in Matthew 14, we see a boy give up his entire lunch so that 5,000 could eat. All in. We see Peter walking on water. You don't walk on water by just sticking your toe in it. You've got to get all in. You've got to trust all in. In chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he follows that question with a question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter's response is his classic statement of faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Matthew tells us that now, now that Jesus' identity has finally dawned on the disciples, he starts to tell them that he is going to go to Jerusalem and he is going to suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders and he is going to die and he is going to rise again. At that point, Peter's confession morphs into rebuke and he tells Jesus to stop saying that. But Jesus says, get behind me. I'm all in. I'm all in with this plan. I'm all in for the kingdom, which brings us back to the second all-in verse that we've already seen. 16.25 For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But this time there's a little tag on in verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? All in. There's no middle. There's no walk in the line. There's no holding back. Are you all in this morning? Your answer should be a resounding, not really. Because we can't be. We can't be on our own. We're human. We're limited. We're not holy. We're sinful. Except for the grace that Christ poured out for us on the cross. We can't be all in on our own. We can only be all in through the blood of Jesus. There's no other way. And as we have that blood applied to us, and we realize that all in looks different for a believer than it looks for a Super Bowl team, it's not about your commitment It's not about your level of activity. It's not about your effort. It's not about how hard you work or how committed you are to the task. It's not about how you're the first one there and the last one to leave. It's all about Jesus' faithfulness to us. His mercy and His grace poured out on us. When we realize that, When we can walk 
in the Spirit, just as Matthew walked with Jesus, we realize being all in is about His presence in our life. And that's going to look different for each of us. For some of you, it might mean stepping out and doing something because you haven't done anything. For some of you, it might mean sitting down and doing nothing because you don't slow down to listen and be with God. For all of us, it means digging into the Word of God, not to know the words, not to fill our heads with knowledge, but to know the Word, capital W. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word, knowing that Word, knowing Him. So that as Christ lives in us, so that when He's all in, we're all in. You know, we could go on in Matthew. You know, we haven't even got to the love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I was really excited in the praise team saying that this morning, even though it, 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 we didn't go that far. Obviously, we haven't gotten to the cross where Jesus is all in on the cross. We, we could go past um, the book of Matthew into the book of Acts, and we'd see all the disciples who were once cowards running away from Jesus in the garden are now standing up for their faith, rejoicing at persecution. We see the disciples... Uh, you know, church tradition tells us that each one of them, uh, except for John, died because they preached the gospel. And what was the difference in being all in? It's that they had a relationship with the resurrected Lord. That is what being all in is all about. That we walk with Jesus. That we allow Him to be in charge of every area of our life. Our family, our job, our hobbies, our downtime, our drive time. We all have steps to take to be more all in. We will our whole life. But I pray this morning that you will take your next step. That you will lay your life before God once again or for the first time either way and just say, what is my next step to be all in? And that in faith, you will step it. Whether it's going out and taking the good news, whether it's stepping out into the water, whether it's having a banquet with tax collectors and sinners. And if we will be all in as a body, if we will, will let go of our own ambitions, if we will walk together simply following Him and, and making our lives available, we will see Him glorified. And I don't even know what that looks like, but I can tell you it's amazing. See promises. It's amazing. So this morning, I want to ask you as we sing our, our commitment hymn, are you walking with Him? Maybe you don't have that relationship and maybe you need to make that first step. 
Maybe you need to say, you know, God's been working on me a long time, and I just need to, to, to finally let him in. Or maybe you walked with him at one point and you walked away and you need to come back. Or maybe you've just kind of been coasting. Maybe you're running with him. Help someone else run. Let's not get caught up in this life so much that we're not all in for Jesus. Seeing there's power in the blood there.